0: Lord, and you tell us just to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, which is our spiritual act of worship. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us today by the power of your Holy Spirit to bring you our lives again, and that you would do with us what would be pleasing in your sight. We pray today that you would help us to trust you. Father, we pray that you would protect us this morning from the attacks of the enemy, from the distractions of the enemy. And we ask, Lord, that you would help your word to come, not just with words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction of sin, and that you would change us again from glory to glory to ever-increasing glory as we fix our eyes upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. be the glory and the lifter of our head this morning, Lord Jesus, and make the brightness and the glory and the beauty of your countenance to shine upon us. We love you, and we thank you so much for this time that we get to spend together in your presence gathered around your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Good morning. How we doing? Good? Okay. You all are the ones with four-wheel drive this morning. We know who made it. Go to, go to Genesis chapter 15. Uh, as you're turning there, I'm just going to jump right in and read because I feel like we've got a lot to cover this morning. have got a lot that I want to say. It's a very important passage, so I'm going to jump right in. Genesis chapter 15. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray one more time. God, help us now, please, we pray. Fill me with your spirit. Give me words to speak in the moment that I need it. Uh, give us all hearts to receive it this morning, hearts that are soft, that are not hardened against the seed of your word, but that it would go down in, take root, and grow and have its intended effect and bear fruit for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Genesis chapter 15 is a very theologically significant chapter. Um Verse 6 especially is quoted several times uh, throughout the New Testament, um, especially in Romans 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul essentially does uh, just some exegesis around Genesis chapter 15, and specifically verse 6. What you're continuing to see here as you read the narrative of Genesis, especially starting back at chapter 12 when God first calls Abram, um, uh, who is the father of our faith, is God is creating for himself a people, and the way that he does this is by making promises and by keeping promises. And the big idea I want us to get this morning is that we serve a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And from beginning to end, um, this glorious God graciously steps down uh, to his rebellious creation And he meets them with his promises. And the primary command that he gives us is to just simply trust him. Uh, When Jesus was on this earth, they said, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, believe, trust, have faith in, believe in the one that he has sent. If you think about any relationship in your life, um, or the different types of relationships in your life, rather, I would argue that most likely, The best relationships, the relationships that you value most are relationships that are built upon trust. Not every relationship is built upon trust. Um, Sometimes we have relationships that are just kind of mutually beneficial. So we're going to maybe do some work for somebody, uh, and then they're going to pay us in return. They need work done, and so we do it for them. It's beneficial to them, but then they're going to pay us. It's not really built on trust, although there's probably some there, but it's based more on being mutually beneficial. Sometimes we have relationships with people that we just can't avoid not being around, right? That person next to you in your cubicle, uh, uh, or the cub- in the cubicle next to you, maybe it might be weird if you're both in the same cubicle, a little tight, anyway. Um, but, you know, co-workers that you're just like, you're just kind of stuck with them. Um, sometimes it's family members. You're like, I can't not be related to them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, but they're not all relationships are built on trust, but our relationship with God must be built on trust. He has never given us a reason not to. To trust him, and and I really want us to examine this morning through the life of Abraham the the connection between our faith or belief or trust I'm using all those terms synonymously um, but the relationship and the interaction connection between faith and the promises between our faith and God's promises God's promises are of the utmost importance to us folks, and and when. You'll hear me talk at times about trying to live the Christian life in your own strength or in your own power. What what I mean around that when i begin to talk that way is i'm talking about not living the christian life by faith but faith specifically in the promises of god i think that we have this general like like we try to live our lives with just kind of this general faith in god and in who he is and that's not bad that's good i mean we we cling to the promises but the promises come from the promise maker again he's a promise making promise keeping god but but the promises of god the promises are to faith what air is to breathing, what water is to drinking, what food is to eating. The promises of God are the substance that we, that we put our faith in and that we cling to. Now we know that these promises reflect who God is. What he says flows out of who he is and what, and what he has done. Okay, But my plea for us this morning is that If we're going to be a people that walk by faith and first john says that our faith is the victory that has overcome the world because our faith is set on this promise making promise keeping god we have got to learn to cling to the promises in a functional way that gives us power that gives us strength that truly is like the air the water and the food that we take in every single day just to survive but in the same way, we need these promises. For those of you that were at, those of you men that were at the men's retreat back in the fall, you know that we went through the book of 2 Peter. Peter starts out that letter um, that he writes, and, and one of the first things he says in there is that it is through these very, that we've been given these very great and precious promises because through them, through the promises, we are made partakers of the divine nature. And I wonder this morning, did you wake up this morning And even more than you needed your coffee, and I needed my coffee this morning, amen? Praise the Lord for coffee. But even more than you needed your coffee, did you say, I need a promise this morning? I need something that I know is true this morning. That's how we're to wake up every day. More desperate for the promises of God than even the air that we breathe. And so, kind of two big uh, thoughts here as we work our way through this passage this morning, is that I want to talk about the sufficiency of God's promises and then the source of God's promises. First of all, the promises of God are sufficient for our greatest fears they are sufficient for our greatest fears. Chapter 15, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and the first thing he says to him, and this isn't a promise, but it's attached to a promise. Uh, You guys have heard me talk before that always as you're reading the Bible, look for the connection between the commands and the promises. Technically speaking, the first thing God says here is a command. Here's the command, fear not, do not be afraid. This is the most Frequently repeated command in all of the scriptures. Do not be afraid. Why do you think it is the most frequently Repeated command in all of the scriptures Because we're afraid a lot If you stop and you examine your life and sometimes you wonder like why why did I do that? Many times it is almost always going to be driven out of some sort of fear Fear of what people would say about you fear about losing your reputation some sort of fear Fear of something that maybe has happened to you in the past, and so now you're still living like that's going to happen again. God comes to us over and over and over again in the scriptures, and he says, do not be afraid. And he says to Abram here, fear not. Now, in the context, why would Abram be afraid? Well, if you back up here in chapter 14, as Matt touched on this last week, Abram had just gone to battle against Uh, a couple kings so what had happened was there was a bit of a turf war um, between these kind of they're little like kind of like little city states each city they weren't really big nations at this point but each little city had its own little king and uh, some of the kings came, and they took um, the king of Sodom and a few other kings captive, and Lot was living near Sodom, and that's Abram's uh, nephew. And so uh, Abram, you know, even though he's old, you got to appreciate the zeal of this guy. Uh, you know, he, he's 70-some years old at this point, and he's like, saddle up, boys, we're going after him. And so he gets his posse of 318 men, and they go after him, and they bring him back, and the Lord is with them. You know, it, it's interesting um, Uh, I I was uh, reading a part of a sermon from Charles Spurgeon this past week, and in in commenting uh, on this passage, he he made this interesting comment. Um, He said, uh, cowards cowards get afraid in the midst of the battle, but brave men get afraid after the battle. Cowards get afraid in the midst of the battle, brave men get afraid after the battle the battle. And he pointed to Abram being afraid here, even though he'd already been through the battle. When the battle comes, Abram's like, hey, no problem, let's go after him. Abram's not a coward. Um, but afterwards now, he's probably thinking something along the lines of like, well, man, I just, I just made some enemies. So remember, Abram's the new man in town. He's not, uh, this land, God is promising it to him, but it's not really his yet. Only... By the promise that God will do it someday. And so now he's just made some enemies. He's also, and I'll talk about this more in a little bit, but he also kind of offended the king of Sodom, who was one of the kings that he helped he helped to rescue um, to get back. And, and and notice here when I speak of the sufficiency of God's promises, that God says, Fear not, and then what does he tell him? He says, For I am your shield. I am I am your shield. So if you're afraid that you're going to be attacked by one of these armies that you just kind of went and made mad um, and helped defeat, but you know that they're regrouping, what would you need? You'd need a shield, a God-sized shield. And so God's, when I say that God's promises are sufficient, I, I, what I mean by that is they're, they're specific. They're fitting. They're fitting. For whatever issue might be in your life, his prom, there are promises that are sufficient and fit that situation. He says to Abram, I am your shield. And man, how good it is to, like, again, I don't know if you guys do this when you are reading this during the week, hopefully. But just meditating upon every word. He doesn't just say, Abram, I, I'm a shield. I am your shield. I am your shield, Abram. God is your shield this morning. He's your Savior. He also says to Abram, again, another very fitting promise. He says, your reward shall be very great. Well, if you go back again in chapter 14 and look at the fitting uh, and, and specificity of this promise here, it's you remember he defeats the kings, he gets Lot back, Melchizedek comes out, And meets him, he gives to Melchizedek a tenth of everything. So he gives a tithe to this guy who's priest of God, most high. And it's a foreshadowing of of the coming of Christ. Um, But then the king of Sodom basically offers Abram a reward. And verse 21, it says, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap. In other words, I ain't taken one cent or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of those who, who went with me. So Abraham had just been offered a great reward by this king of Sodom, okay? But he denied it, because why? Because he wanted it to be known that his faith and his hope, his trust, were holy in God, and God comes to him now, and he says, Abram, your reward shall be very great. I believe the King James Version, as it here, it says, I shall be your very great reward. That's also a, um, a legit translation um, there's some debate here in the Hebrews that your reward shall be very great, or I am your great reward. Both are both are true. But do you see again how the promises of God are fitting, are fitting, for the fear that Abraham might be feeling? And again, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but it's kind of another sermon for another time. But I think it's worth just mentioning here is that Abram knew that the king of Sodom would not satisfy. What do we know about Sodom and Gomorrah? It's already been mentioned uh, back in chapter 13 that Sodom was a very wicked city, and it's coming here in a couple chapters. God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And the king of Sodom comes and he offers Abraham reward. Abraham says, I don't want it. He knew that the king of Sodom would not satisfy him. And folks, how easily it is for us at times to try to be satisfied with the things of this world. And want the things of this world to be our reward. In this world, the king of Sodom offers us stuff as our reward and how quickly we are to take it rather than waiting on the promises of God and what he has for us. Many times, faith in God requires that we wait upon him, that we wait for what is better, Again, I've quoted this, this uh, verse to you from Hebrews chapter 11 a couple times as we've been working through the life of Abraham. But again, in commenting on the life of Abraham in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. People who speak like this make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, if they had gone out from that land from which they had, if they were, had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. They desire something better. They, they desired a heavenly country, that which only God can provide. And Abraham here isn't willing to be satisfied by the king of Sodom, but he wants to be satisfied in God alone, in God meets that need and he says I will be your great reward or your reward will be great Abraham or abram here uh, there's there's a part of abram's life that is or personality I should say that's very passionate and and it's good and one of the things I like about Abram is just his um, his zeal it's it, it's it it's not disrespectful but at the same time it's it, it, it almost borders on that sometimes, but he, the way that he pleads with God for his deepest desires. And, and so God comes to him with these great promises. I'll be your shield, I'll be your reward, verse 2. But Abram said, "Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. So remember, God had promised him offspring back in chapter 12. He's continued to promise him these things. But Abram's like, I don't, I don't see it yet, God. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And God says to him again, This man shall not be your heir. That's not true, Abram. Have you ever felt like this? Like, God, I I just, where where are you? You Lord, I see your promises. God, I see all that you can do. Lord, you say the word to believe you for great things, and for you to move, and for you to change lives. But God, I just don't see it yet. God says, this man will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then he does something very beautiful. It's a beautiful one of the most beautiful scenes here in all the Bible. Verse five, and he brought him outside, and he said to him, "So what, 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 do, you, what do you do when you're doubting God? I love this first little line here. What do you do when you're not sure if the promises of God are really real?" He said to Abram, "Look toward heaven. look." toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them then he said to him so shall your offspring be abram and sarah are barren they cannot have kids it's obviously not by their choice but is what it is no matter how badly they try they can't fix this but god has given them a promise that this is going to happen now you can imagine the emotion the emotional pain that is tied to this for them but god is not teasing them he loves them and he wants them to trust him and so he brings them outside and he tells them to look towards heaven and to number the stars it's interesting that again, back in chapter 14, the way that Abram describes the God that he serves to the king of Sodom. Verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. Again, Abram didn't have the whole Bible like we do now, but God brings him out here, and Abram. one thing Abram does know about God is he's the one that's created everything, the heaven and the earth. He tells him to look To the stars. How did those stars get there? Abram knew this. How did those stars get there? By his word. Those stars used to not exist. But they were placed in heaven by the word of God. And the same word of God that placed those stars in the heavens is the same word of God that's coming to Abram now saying, you will have a child. You will have an heir. Everything rises and falls on God's word. Paul says in Colossians, very simply, he says, he upholds all things by his powerful word. Everything. This is why we don't freak out when leaders and politicians make boneheaded decisions. God upholds all things by his powerful word. This is why we don't freak out when people try to sound the alarm about global warming or the end of the world or pandemics or whatever. God upholds all things by his powerful word. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And what he wants for his people is to trust him just like Abram trusted him that he was not going to be barren forever. Um, but his word, his promises, would be accomplished. But do you see, here's what I want you to see, that God's promises are were fitting for Abram's life. People are going to attack? No, no, I'll be your shield. You turned down the reward of the king of Sodom, which was good of you? I'll be your reward. You did not have any kids? I'll, I'll provide that for you. The promises of God Are fitting I want to tell you this morning that no matter what your need is as you sit here this morning no matter what uh, what pain what fear you have so you sit here the promises of God are sufficient for that they are fitting now hear me we don't always know how it's going to be met so because I don't want you to hear me saying something that I'm not saying but healing for example you might be sick. Someone you love might be, might be sick. There are promises throughout the Word of God that God is able to heal people. Amen? He's able. It's not too difficult for Him. But ultimately, these promises speak of who He is. And our faith isn't just in the promises, but it's in the one who gave the promises, in the promise giver and the promises of god are so big and we see this throughout abram's life is that they're so big one little finite life on this you know whatever we get here on this earth like 80 years i mean abram's going to get a little more he's going to get 175 <clears throat> but one little life on this earth, they, they can't contain the promises of god but folks even if you're even if you're battling sickness and you're praying for god to heal you pray that that's great but even if he doesn't To live is Christ, and to die is gain. God's promises are still better. And the much greater promise is that when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for He is with us all the way from here to glory. I don't know if you guys remember back in 2009 when the iPhone first came out. Doesn't it seem like this thing's been around forever? It does to me, but it hasn't always been. And 2009, it was just coming out. You know, I'm a Verizon guy. Uh, I was annoyed that AT&T only had the iPhone at the beginning. Couldn't get it on Verizon. But it finally came to Verizon. And Verizon, they had this little marketing campaign for the iPhone. And there was this little catchphrase. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but they would just say, there's an app for that. They would show you something you can do, and then they'd say, and there's an app for that. There's an app for that. There's an app for that. In fact, back in 2009, Apple actually uh, registered uh, the phrase with the, the trademark committee. Um, there's an app for that. They literally own that phrase. There's an app for that. Um, I say that because as the people of God, as, Christ, as Christ's people if there's one thing that we should own that should be like the trademark of the church, it should be this. There's a promise for that. There's a promise for that. No matter what the need is, no matter what the fear is, there's a promise for that. And behind that promise, behind the specific promise, there is a God who is the promise maker. And he's the promise keeper. And he's always faithful, folks. Amen? He's always faithful. Not only are the promises of God, though, fitting and sufficient for the specific fears that we face, but they're also sufficient to meet our greatest needs. And this is where verse 6 comes in, such an important verse in the scope of the entire Bible and the scope of theology and what we believe. This is why we're so adamant that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Verse 6, and the way it's, it's kind of worded here, in the original is it's almost kind of an aside. It's like a little comment that's given. And, and I'll show you um, from the Bible why that's true and why we're to read it that way here in just a second. But verse 6, so he, you know, he takes Abram out, look at the stars, if you can number them, so shall your, shall, your, shall your offspring be. Verse 6, and he believed the Lord. It's literally just he, Abram. Abram believed Yahweh. Yes, he believed in what he would do. He believed he would be a shield. He believed that he was the one that could give him a child. He believed that he would be his great reward. But not just those things, that those were included, but he believed God himself. He believed Yahweh. And Yahweh, he counted it to him as righteousness. Now why do I say the promises of God are not only sufficient for our greatest fears, but also for our greatest needs? Because right here it is. Right in the text, our greatest need before an almighty holy God is to be made righteous. Is to be made righteous. It was Abram's greatest need, and it's our greatest need. In Romans chapter 1, I've quoted these verses to you many times, but hear them again. Verses 16 and 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. Why? Why is this good news? Why is it the power of God unto salvation? Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So what makes the gospel means good news? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Well, why is that good news? Because in it a righteousness is revealed. Well, why do I need righteousness? Why is it good news that righteousness is revealed through this gospel message? Because we're not righteous. Abram was not righteous. But God counted it to him as righteousness if he would just believe. In verse 17 in Romans chapter 1, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What must you do to be made right with God? It is by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ, and what he has done. I told you the verse 6 years. it's almost like just a little commentary, a little parenthesis, if you will, within the midst of the story. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is speaking of this passage. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 18, just listen carefully. It says, "...in hope, Abram believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations." As he had been told, told, so shall your offspring be. That's a quote from right there in verse 5 of chapter 15. So shall your offspring be, as many as the stars. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now listen, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's quoting from verse 6. He goes on, Romans 4.23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Verse 6 is written 2,000 years before Paul ever exists. They're written for Paul's day, and they're written 2,000 years, Paul writes them again, 2,000 years later, for us. Those words are for us. They are written for ours, for our benefit also. That it will be counted to us who believe in Him, in the God, in Yahweh, who raised from the dead Our our Lord Jesus Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It is good news that we are justified, that we are made right by faith alone in the sacrifice of Christ. This meets our greatest need. Only by faith. And I want to drill down here for a second and I want to push this, folks, because I know on one level what I'm saying. You're like, Eric, we've heard this before. We, 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 we know this. And I know that many of you do, but there are still times in our life here, the thing that I want to bring out in front and I want to beat up for a second, if you will, sorry not to be too violent here this morning, but it is this idea that we are all given to, is that we think that it's faith in Christ plus just a little something else. Plus a little something else. I'm not a great cook. I, I can make toast. I can make Pop-Tarts. I'm getting pretty good on the smoker. Smoke some uh, pulled pork. I'm the grill man in the house. But apart from that, it's not that great. My problem is, I watch these cooking shows. Yeah, it's just, they make it look so easy, don't they? And, y- you know, when I, when I try to cook something, I always just want to add a little something extra to it. I'm like, you know what, I'll go in the spice cabinet, and you know what, this looks good, but it's not good. It ruins it. And all of us have the same tendency in regards to our relationship with God and the righteousness that he provides. Is we just, we're like, well, yeah, I may have faith in Jesus, but I just, I just, I'm gonna add a little bit to I'm gonna add a little bit of this religious action to it. And maybe that'll help just a little bit. Folks, it won't help. It just won't. Um, let me make it plain, okay? I want to shoot as straight with you as I can this morning. That this, this doctrine of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, this is, this is what why we have the terms Protestant and Catholic. The 1500s, Martin Luther was kind of the lightning rod. He wasn't the first one to see it by any stretch, but became the lightning rod and kind of the strike point for this great debate where you have now today the Protestant church protestant, Protestant they were protesting against the Catholic church because the Catholic church taught that you had to have faith in Christ, but it was faith plus something else. Faith plus following some of the rules that the Pope gave. Faith plus paying indulgences. Faith plus making a journey to Rome. What, whatever they might have thrown in there. And there was there was a lot, and it was kind of a sliding, moving target. But Martin Luther, along with many of the other reformers, were adamant that it is faith alone that justifies. Um, this isn't a massively catholic area where we live but we do live in an area that although it's not catholic we believe many of us have grown up believing some of the same types of things that yeah it's by faith in jesus but it's also by what denomination you belong to or the way that you dress or what you drive or what you don't drive or you these little, this little list of things that we prop up as um, moral high ground that we take. Salvation is by faith alone. 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 You cannot add to it. And if you do try to add to it, You become an enemy of the cross of Christ. Because what you're saying is that the cross was not enough. I'm just going to quote at length several, what I like to call old school good guys, okay, from church history, starting with a couple from Martin Luther. He, said, when the, he says, When the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the Church of God. And without it, the Church of God cannot exist for one hour. It is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, the judge over all other doctrines. In another place, he says, It ought to be the primary goal of every Christian to put aside confidence in works and grow stronger in the belief that we are saved by faith alone. Through this faith, the Christian should increase in knowledge, not of works, but of Christ Jesus and the benefits of his death and resurrection. An old school uh, Puritan named John Flavel, and man, he really brings the thunder here, so listen up. John Flavel said, How dangerous it is to join anything of our own to the righteousness of Christ in pursuit of justification before God. Jesus Christ will never endure this. It reflects upon his work dishonorably. He will be all or none in our justification. If he has finished the work, what need is there of our additions? And if not, to what purpose are they? Can we finish that which Christ could not complete? Did he finish the work, and will he ever divide the glory and praise of it with us? No, no. Christ is no half-savior. It is a hard thing to bring proud hearts to rest upon Christ for righteousness. God humbles the proud by calling sinners holy from their own righteousness to, the, to Christ for their justification. J.C. Ryle said, one must cast away all pride and high thoughts and conceit of his own goodness. He must be content to go to heaven as a poor sinner saved only by free grace and owing all to the merit and righteousness of another. He must be willing to give up all trust in his own morality, respectability, praying, Bible reading, church going, sacrament receiving, to trust in nothing but Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not cute for us to say, yeah, I'm justified by faith alone, but the reason that I hold to this religious uh, ritual that I do, was well, it's just tradition. That's not cute. Let our traditions all burn and be cast aside. We stand in the righteousness of Christ alone. And if you think that that language is strong about letting our traditions, man-made traditions, not rooted in the Bible, but rooted in just what man has come up with as a faux sense of morality, um, listen to the language that Paul uses specifically in regards to this exact thing that we're talking about. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Look out for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he's speaking here of the religious folks, those who are saying, yeah, it's Christ, but you must also be circumcised and hold to the ceremonial law of Moses. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, you understand what Paul's saying when he says confidence in the flesh? He's talking about confidence in a bunch of moralistic, religious, good deeds that one could do. Paul's saying, you think you're a moralistic, good, religious guy? He's like, man, I will, I'll stomp on you. He goes, I'm, I'm far more. He goes on here, he goes, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But listen, but then he goes on and he says, and, and, and we quote this verse a lot, but I don't think we realize what he's talking about. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And listen, he goes, and I count them as rubbish. The word for rubbish is the Greek word skubala. It literally means dung, manure. And you understand what he's counting as manure. All these religious things that he used to do. That I'm a Pharisee. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I can trace my lineage back to Abram as a natural descendant of Israel. I was a persecutor of the church, saying I didn't just do these things, I was passionate about these things. And Paul says, whatever gain I had from those religious things, I count them as manure compared to knowing Christ. And Paul goes on. And he says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I want to be found in Christ not having any righteousness of anything outwardly, any religious good deed that I do, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him And the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain from the resurrection of the dead. Do you hear where I'm getting this from in the Bible, folks? Do you hear why I'm telling you that our little man-made religious traditions, they are not cute. We don't just say about them. We don't just say, well, it's just the way mom and dad did it. It's just the way that grandpa and grandma did it. It's just the way I grew up. If you, and listen, you, you might have faith in Christ. You might be justified. You might be fully born again. But I want to be as clear as I possibly can. If you are trusting in Christ plus something else, you do not know him. It is Christ alone for salvation. We are justified only by faith in what Christ has done. Paul's entire attitude there in Philippians. He says, it's, "If I just had to sum up, he's, he's basically saying he's just like I, with all of my might, I want everybody to see that all I have is Jesus. I want people to say that about me. I want you to want for people to say that about you. I want for people to say that about us." That when they look at our lives, they would know that the one driving force, the passion above all other passions, is we want the world to know that we are sinners and we have been saved wholly, fully, totally by Jesus Christ alone. That's it. Nothing added to it. Because nothing can be added to it. Nothing in our hand we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. God's promises are sufficient for our fears. They're sufficient to meet our greatest need. Christ's righteousness. By faith alone, we are justified. And lastly here, the source, not only the sufficiency, but the source of God's promises. As I've already said, they they flow from his own faithfulness, his, his heart. But they become more concrete to us when we look at what he's done for us. And there's this weird thing that happens here. And I say weird because it wasn't weird to Abram, but it's weird to us because we don't understand this. But the last part of chapter 15, so Abram believes God, he counts it to him as righteousness. But verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Verse 8, but Abram said to him, O Lord God, how am I to know? Abram's still like, he's like, I, how, how am I to know? How am I to know that I'm going to possess it? And then, it, you know, it, it's funny when you read it just on a natural level. So Abram's pleading with God here, and just the next line, I'm like, Lord, how am I to know? And God says, bring me a heifer. You're like, what? Bring me a heifer. I wasn't expecting that one. Um, but here's what God's going to do. is They're going to go through a covenant ceremony. And What Abram does here is Abram brings the heifer and he knows what to do with it. Because this was part of the culture of the day. So he goes on here and says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and he cut them in half and laid them over against each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. But he kills all the birds and he basically, you think about cutting a heifer, I mean think what this was like, you cut it in half, laid it against each other and all the blood would flow through the middle, each one of these pieces and it creates this path of blood. Okay. So in our day, when we want to make a deal with somebody, when we strike a deal, we draw up a contract. And there are terms to those, con- to, to those contracts. And so the idea of a, con- a contract is that you're going to do your part. Here's your, your, um, here's your part of the deal. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to deliver. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you're going to deliver. And then we sign our name to it, right? Well, they didn't, they didn't um, sign things, but they went through ceremonies like this. And the, the reason for the death of the animals was... This was the culturally expected way. It's very, very earnest, very, very earnest. So when, when Abram says to you, God, how am I to know, God, God says, okay, I'll show you how you're going to know. We're going to make a blood covenant. God is literally being, no pun intended, blood earnest here. And they make this covenant, so what the two parties would do when you make a covenant is, they would both walk through that path of blood. Like, why would they do that? Because it was a picture. Again, to the Hebrew mind, and many times in antiquity, everything was a picture. Where we have things in writing or spelled out, everything they did was a picture. Okay? And so the picture is if I don't keep my part of the deal, let this be done to me. If I don't keep my part of the deal, then let me be killed like these animals were killed. Okay? Now, If you understand that, and the seriousness of this, you understand why, in verse 12, it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. That's Hebrew for he was freaked out of his mind. Why? Because he's making a blood covenant with God. Very serious. This deep sleep falls upon him. And I think also because of the, the dread fell, because of the, the seriousness of, and the overwhelming nature of all that God says here to Abram, he says, "'Know for certain that your offspring "'will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. "'They will be servants there, "'and they will be afflicted for 400 years. "'But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, "'and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. "'As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. "'You shall be buried in a good old age.'" and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so God makes Abram this deep sleep fall on Abram, and he tells him all that's going to happen. It's kind of like the terms of the covenant, okay? But now, here's the key. And again, it's, it's a weird cultural detail, but let me explain it because it really is super important. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Okay. Now this smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, these are visible manifestations of God. Okay. So similarly, um, hundreds of years from th- this time when God brings the people of Israel out of Egypt, they are led by a pillar of cloud and fire, cloud by day and fire by night. It's similar imagery, those were manifestations of God. Similar imagery here is the smoking fire pot and this flaming torch that passed between the pieces. But now here's here's the detail. Remember, I said Abram's making a covenant with God. Abram says, God, how am I to know? God says, let's make a covenant. I'll show you that I'm a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And Abram's like, what's my part going to be? But you'll notice Abram never walks the path. God says, I'm going to do my part, the smoking fire pot, but then also the flaming torch. And this is the gospel. Abram says, God says, Abram, I'm going to keep my part, but I'm also going to keep your part." And this is pointing forward as we've seen these shadows images in the Old Testament. this is pointing forward how did God ultimately keep Abram's part? he sent his son jesus christ to live the perfect righteous life that not abram or any human being could ever could ever do and he became a substitute for us and the death that we deserved in covenanting with god because we aren't faithful in our promises i mean next chapter next week guys we're going to look at how abram sins with hagar We never keep our promises, but God always keeps his. And through Christ, he stepped in thousands of years later. And he took the punishment that not only Abraham deserved, but that we deserve. We serve a promise-making, promise-keeping God. There's also a beautiful picture here in verse 12. That it says, as the sun was going down... A deep sleep fell on Abram. That idea, This idea of a deep sleep, it's the same picture, or the same wording, I'm sorry, that's used of Adam back in Genesis chapter 2. You'll remember at that point of the narrative in the book of Genesis, it's what's Adam's greatest need. Well, there's not a helper found fit for him. God has not yet created Eve. God brings all the animals before him, and you know none is found. A helper's not found that is suitable. What's Adam's greatest need? He needs a helper fit for him. What does God do? He causes a deep sleep to come upon him. And while Adam is asleep, he takes a rib from his side and he creates for him that which will meet his greatest need. What is Abram's greatest need? What is our greatest need? It's for somebody to provide a righteousness for us so that we could truly be justified by faith alone in that righteousness that's provided for us. Abram, God causes Abram to fall asleep, and he makes a covenant on his behalf, totally unilaterally, while Abram is deep asleep, just like Adam was deep asleep, incapacitated, Abram here is out of it. And God does what only God can do for us. This is how you become a Christian. You gotta understand that there's nothing you could do. It is all totally of God. He does his part. And he also, to some degree, like he, he does our part. Even now, any victory that we experience. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. In this life, we now live in the body. We live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. From beginning to end, it is Jesus Christ that sees us through. Amen? Worship team, you can come up, and we're going to close. I'm sorry, I know I went long here this morning. Um, I said I felt like we need to spend quite a bit of time in this passage. But, but as we close this morning, first thing I want to ask you is, what are you afraid of this morning? What are your greatest fears? What burdens your mind? What anxiety and worry constantly plagues you? I want to tell you, there's a promise for that. For whatever it is, there's a promise for that. We have his word. We need these promises more than the air we breathe, than the food we eat, than the water we drink. Run to them. Um, Some of you this morning, you you have faith in Christ. And again, only God knows your heart. Only God knows who is truly in Christ and who is not. But folks, if you are clinging to anything outwardly that you think somehow makes you right in his sight apart from faith in the sacrifice of Christ, would you please let it go this morning? Would you please count it, as Paul said, as rubbish, as manure? And cling fully, totally, completely to Christ. It is for freedom that he set us free he accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished at the cross also this morning like i know that's it's a funny little phrase there where abram says to god lord how shall i know that i'm to possess it and the response is bring me a heifer but This morning, again, if you rightly understand what I've been trying to say, is that you might still have these doubts and these fears inside of you. God, how am I to know? How am I gonna? How do I know that I'm gonna have eternal life? How am I gonna know that it's gonna be okay? How am I gonna know that you're never gonna leave me or forsake me? God doesn't say, "Bring me a heifer," but here's what He does say: Come here, look at the cross. He says, look at the cross. No, he doesn't say, come on, I'll, sh- I'll show you what I will do. No, guys, it's been done. It's been done at the cross. What was done there was enough. Let's trust it. Father, thanks for this morning. Lord, we love you. Uh, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word in all of its perfection. Help us not to just acknowledge that these promises are true, but help us to cling to them with a wholehearted trust that gives all the honor and glory to Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.